Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Tuesday, June the 12th, 2018. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva, and you can check out the show all the time at MetsMorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. You can also get it over at The Grueling Truth, which is part of the iHeart radio the iheart media network so hope everybody's doing well a couple of days uh, after the end of the subway series uh, mets had a day off i had an opportunity uh, to do a show at wlie 5:40 a.m so i hope you enjoyed it, it was up on the feed yesterday the replay of that that was during the subway series probably from you know the end of the first till about the sixth or seventh inning so you know a good chunk of the game we had a chance to chat about the state of the Mets, got some Yankee reaction from our buddy Justin Wolters of Verizon Fios. Always enjoy subbing in for Rich Catino, our buddy at over, over at ESPN 98.7, as he was on assignment over at City Field. So the podcast I pushed off for a day, which, was, which I was glad with, gave time for some things to marinate. You never know on an off day, especially as the Mets have been struggling, what happens. There were a few minor moves. Uh, the era of Adrian Gonzalez is no more. The era of Jose Lobaton is no more. Well, we'll see if Lobaton stays with the organization. You always need catching de- depth. And away you go with Dom Smith now, an opportunity to seize the first base position. Ty Kelly returns. He's been on the shuttle the last couple of years. So we'll see how that uh, pans out. Our guest today had a chance to catch up with him over the weekend is uh, Joe DeMeo, Amazing Avenue, The Seven Line. He, he's uh, a writer over at that blog. Joe, every year, and his handle is PSL to Flushing, always covers 
the draft in such a professional, thorough manner. And, you know, I've had Jonathan Mayo on. You know, I've thought about having Jim Callis of MLB Pipeline. There's all the experts that you'll see on MLB Network. But Joe really, especially from a Mets perspective, goes in deep into the weeds and gives you just as good, if not better, analysis of the Mets draft and the Mets organization. I'm sure he'll be excited to tell us about Jared Kelnick and, and some of the other potential sleepers that are in this uh, draft. I also wanted to look back at Sandy Alderson's first draft, the 2011 draft that produced Brandon Nimmo, which now you could start to evaluate. Well, there's also some names on that draft. Uh, Robert Gazelman was in that draft, Seth Lugo. So a couple of names uh, in addition to uh, Brandon Nimmo, who was the top pick, that have, have made some impact and are making are making impact here for the Mets. So you'll hear Joe in just a couple of minutes as uh, we get into it. Let's start off with uh, the State of the Union here with this team. Awful, awful homestand. Uh, can't get any... You can't get around that at all. There's, there was just an awful homestand. And, uh, you know, right now this team is is six games under five hundred. Uh, they played awful. They nearly had a winless homestand. So you can't really you can't really take much positive out of the homestand. I was listening to Sal Licata over there on WOR last night, and he was talking about how the Yankees series was, was one where maybe you could take some positives away. Well, you know what? When you go 1-8 and eight on a homestand, you really can't take away too many positives. What I'll say is this, and uh, I think Kevin Kernan over at the New York Post wrote a great piece this morning that all of you should check out, which outlines my thoughts exactly. You could go three ways with the Mets right now. Um, the Mets are 7.5 out of the, of the division. They're 7.5 out of a wild card spot right now. That's 7 in the loss column for the Nationals. And... Um, if you if you know if you go into the wild card spot, it's about the same right now. So, and they're the only team worse than them in the division is Miami. So they have to jump over Philadelphia. They have to jump over Atlanta. They have teams like St. Louis, Milwaukee, uh, and then they have the muck of Colorado, San Francisco, the Dodgers. It, there's just so many teams in this muck. Mets are in a horrible position, uh, and you and you really can't see them hitting 500, except for you know, some good stretch of baseball for two or three weeks. That's the best position. And that's bringing you up almost to the the all-star break. And this West Coast trip or this, you know, Rocky Mountain trip, I shouldn't call it West Coast, where you go to Atlanta, Colorado, Arizona, this could be it. If you have a disastrous road trip, it's over. There's no scenario where you could even have some kind of season. You have to be talking about rebuilding. But there's there's, there's three ways this team could go regardless of what happens on this trip that they're going, this 10-game trip. One is you grind it out, you wait for Cespedes to get back, regardless of how many games you lose, and you ride it out with this team, and you get to see, potentially, who's a keeper and who do you need to move away from on this roster. Let's see who quits. Let's see who still stays engaged. Let's see who really wants to play here. Let's see who's a gamer. I mean, that's 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 what, what times like this where you'll you'll learn a little bit about some players. The second thing you can do to get maybe some, and that first thing is boring. And I know a lot of the fans don't want to hear that and like that because they have to sit back and be patient and watch this team every night. The second thing is you make a statement. You fire the manager. You fire a coach. I don't think that, it doesn't sound like that's going to be the case, including the pitching, uh, the hitting coach, Pat Rosler. Uh, Callaway, to me, continues to be uh, treated unfairly by the media. Bob Raceman, and I talked about this on Sunday on uh, WLIE, Bob Raceman had a column talking about how his press conferences are, are odd and boring. And I'm saying to myself, well, maybe he's defending his players, and that's always a tough situation for a manager in this town in this time of media when they're on the air, before the game, after the game. I mean, it really almost started, and you guys are going to laugh with Jeff Torborg when he had the Mike and the Mad Dog uh, appearance, a pregame appearance, a postgame appearance. And those are one-on-ones. Now you have the group settings. So it's it's not quite as one-on-one intense as it used to be. But at some point, there's only so many things the guy could say. I mean, he's been saying the same thing all day, and then he gets to the podium after the game, and it's the same old song with players who have hit in the past, that have long histories of success and not performing. What do you want him to say? 
So, and, and I don't think he's an inarticulate guy. I think he's cautious. He's guarded. I don't think he's feeding the media like Terry. Um, he doesn't have that bumbly, folksy, nonsense act going on. And, uh, you know, the media is looking to tear somebody down. Look, they have their darlings right now, the Yankees. They need somebody to beat up, and it's going to be the Mets. And, and the Mets have to, the only, the only way the Mets could change that is they win. And even if they win, there are going to be those going to wait for them to slip on the banana peel. So to me, the manager is not the problem. The coaches are not the problem. We'll see how this team stays engaged. That's, that is in the control of the manager. So his evaluation period continues. But right now, I haven't seen anything to me that indicates the manager is the huge problem. The reason fans want him fired is because they're not getting what they want. They're not looking at process. They're looking at outcome versus process. And to say, hey, look at this pitching staff, how it's turned things around. It's the best starting rotation over the last 20, 21 games in all of baseball. Uh, you know, I think the bullpen with all the revolving door, and I know he's made some moves that could be questioned, all in all has, has not been a, a wreck. This would have been a mess under Terry Collins and Dan Worthen. They would have no idea how to pivot and go anywhere with what's gone on with this pitching staff this year. And, uh, you know, to me, they deserve a lot of credit for that. The offense, I don't know if that's necessarily his fault. He can't hit for them. He can't make Jay Bruce hit his career norms. He can't make Michael Conforto hit his career norms. He can't um, get Ioannis Cespedes' uh, lower body healthy. Uh, there's, you know, to me, that's 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 just the way it is. There's nothing you can do. You know, the, who who would have predicted all this? Who would have predicted that these guys are 20, 30, 40% worse than their career norms offensively? The third thing you can do is tear this thing down and start ripping it apart. And I think that, and Kevin Kernan accurately says in the post this morning, that's not the way to go. You have two really good starting pitchers. Seth Lugo is emerging. Steven Matz is finally settled in. Uh, Zach Wheeler, I'm, I don't think Zach Wheeler is ever going to be more than a back end of the rotation starter. I've said for a long time I'm not a big fan, but he's starting to come around. That's a valuable thing. Like You guys are all forgetting about how important starting pitching is because everybody's gotten away in the media about launch angle and bullpens and home runs and at the end of the day in a short series in the postseason the team with the best starting pitching will win most part and if you have a deep starting rotation some of those starters will be put into the bullpen to do mini starter starts like relief appearances rather than bringing in a pitcher who you know is a decent reliever but at any given moment, could cough it up. Houston's a perfect example of how they won a championship last year when their starter, uh, when their reliever, their closer, Ken Giles, went and spit the bit. They were able to use uh, Charlie Morton and some other relievers in relief. Lance McCullers, guys like that. They almost like piggyback starts. So, you know, when you have the kind of rotation the Mets have, if it stays healthy, and they have some interesting arms down in the minor leagues. You don't go start ripping it apart and tearing it down because you can win with this. This offense, I know it's not sexy to sit around and say, let's wait for it. There's nothing else you can do. The bullpen's not bad. Gazelman has settled in. I know that Lugo's been awesome in the bullpen, but maybe that's coming to an end with moving him to the rotation. Hopefully, Familia's not out long-term. You slide him back in. I think Swarzak's a decent pitcher. Jerry Blevins... Should be able to get lefties out. And you can acquire a reliever. So I still think it's a lot easier. Everyone's like talking about how it's all about bullpens. Yeah, but you could acquire a decent reliever. You really can. And they have some arms down there. There's Drew Smith that they acquired for Lucas Duda. There's Ryan Ryder who they got in the Jay Bruce deal from Cleveland. Uh, Tyler Bashler. There's If you go up and down the Mets at least last year from their wreck of 2017 acquired some bullpen type arms. So there's going to be young players that are going to be coming up that I think can help at least look like they have some good stuff. The, the kid, Eric Hanhold, they got for the Neil, for Neil Walker in the Milwaukee trade. I don't know if any of these guys are going to be any good, but they're promising arms. So the bullpen I'm not worried about. And offensively, you should be able to acquire somebody to play that could be, you know, we're talking about not, not all-stars here, you know, average to uh, above average offensive players. Decent offensive players. That's what they need to win. So to rip this thing apart is beyond foolish. It's it's myopic. It goes back into what I said a billion times what bothers me 
about the mindset of the fan base and the media in the modern age. If you're not a top five team, you're not worth investing in. And in baseball, that is so foolish. That is so dumb when at the end of the day, it's a tournament. And you could win 150 games during the regular season. And that five game, that seven game, that one game playoff, anything could happen. When the San Francisco Giants won three World Series every other year, starting in ten, uh, 2010, uh, that 2013, uh, was it a 2014 team? They didn't have a great regular season. But they had the kind of pieces, a guy like Madison Bumgarner, Buster Posey, enough offense where when they got into the tournament, they were dangerous. And this Mets team, as you saw from watching them play the Yankees this past weekend, can be dangerous. They shut down the Yankee offense. Nobody's talking about that. Nobody's talking about that because nobody wants to talk about that. It's 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 not it's not fun. I mean, the Yankee offense right now is averaging 5.45 runs a game, the best in the American League, more than the Red Sox, more than the Astros. They have an OPS plus of 113, 13 uh, better than league, 13 percent better than league average. And the Mets shut them down. Let's mind you, that offense is better than every uh, National League team, significantly better than every National League team. The Cubs are averaging five runs a game. The Mets, on the other hand, are averaging, averaging 3.82, which is <laughs> near the bottom. So, you know, they played with those guys. And if if it was back in the day, I wonder if this would have been one of those classic Subway series. Every game was close. There was some late heroics. There was good pitching. There was some good defense. Miguel Andujar made a game-saving play. So, I mean, why why would you? I know that they've had a horrible homestand, and this homestand threw them completely for a loop. It may be the reason why, at the end of the season, you look back and say, if they only played halfway decent during the stretch, things would have been different. I, I believe that might be a, a very serious conversation that happens. So to me, you ride this out. Now, if you have a bad road trip or you really start to see things not transpiring in any way, shape, or form, I still don't rip it down. But what you could do is you could dangle Familia. You can uh, you could try to trade Cabrera. Hopefully he's healthy. Uh, you know, you start to consider, I know they said they're not going to bring up Peter Alonzo, but Maybe he gets some reps at the end of the year. It sounds like defense is going to be his issue. Maybe Peter Alonso's a trade chip. Maybe he's a DH. You know, you never know how they're thinking about it. You bring up a couple of these kids that are the relievers to start implementing that, you know, matriculating them into the rotation, implementing whatever their role is going to be so that you know what you have. And then, I'm sorry, you do not rip apart this starting rotation. You go with it, you run with it, and you run with this rotation until it absolutely you can't run with it anymore. Because it's special and it doesn't come around that often. You don't get guys like DeGrom and Syndergaard. You don't get lucky where a Mats could be a really solid number three with some Knights looking like a one or a two. Uh, Wheeler, I mean, they're still relatively inexpensive. And you saw with the free agent market, with starting pitchers, the guys like Jason Vargas, I mean, all those guys, Alex Cobb, Lance Lynn, they're not game changers. They make a lot of money. You already have guys better than that in the rotation because that's what, eventually that's what you're going to have to do to, when you want to win, rebuild this whole thing. Now you have Justin Dunn, who had a decent double-A debut. David Peterson, Anthony Kay, but you don't know what those guys, those are, again, those are minor leaguers. You don't know how they're going to transition to the big leagues. You don't know who they're going to be. And think about this rotation. This rotation is without Matt Harvey. And it's still, to me, do they miss vintage Matt Harvey? Sure they do. Imagine him as 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 a third member of the band. Vintage Matt Harvey, not Matt Harvey since 2016. And they still... To me, I take this rotation over pretty much anybody else's. Maybe not Houston's, because Houston's pretty good, but there's a lot of teams, the Yankees included, by the way, taking Severino out of the conversation that probably would take the Mets rotation over theirs. And you don't rip that up, and you don't rebuild. You start to take a look at how can you become more diversified on offense. You've already, you've already made the play to get rid of some of the dead weight. Gonzalez is gone. Reyes will probably be next when Flores and or Cespedes comes back. 
you know, maybe they could finally take a look at some of these kids like Jeff McNeil, who's who's having a big year down in Double A, who could profile as utility guy. You don't rip this apart. But here's the road trip that's going to define. If there's going to be any glimmer of some kind of 500 season and maybe meaningful games to play for a second wild card, it's going to start now. It's going to start over the next couple of weeks. You cannot be considered serious until you're a 500 team. The fact that the league hasn't run away from them, it's actually they're lucky because they played so badly now for about six or seven weeks. But there's too much talent here. I'm not sitting here looking at a team and saying, eh, this can't happen. Like, you're going to tell me Michael Conforto won't return to norm? Jay Bruce won't return to norm? If Cespedes is healthy, he's not going to hit? You're going to tell me that? Yeah, the first base black hole, That's we knew that was a strong possibility that would happen. Mezzarocco's done a pretty good job with the issues they had to catch her by losing Darno. Cabrera's come back down to earth, but he's still, if he's healthy, he's still going to be a decent bat. Rosario's doing what you would expect from a first-year player, just trying to fit in. And actually, Todd Frazier is doing pretty much what his career norms are. He's a component player. What did you expect? You can't expect more. Brendan Nimmo's had a really great season. Another player that can add a different element. So there's there's just a lot here that's that you look at and you say, and even with Bruce, they've talked about the process, and they look at his swing. They're like, there's nothing there that says he won't hit. You just wonder, are they ready to bust out this offense? You hope that when they bust out the offense, the pitching doesn't all of a sudden, because the pitching has been really good for three weeks, that they're going to creep back up to some kind of norm that that doesn't bite them. And that typically would 500 are bad teams is what happens. None of the components of the of the team work at the same time. But at, at, they've only had one or two guys get hot at the same time. It's bound to happen. And you go to Arizona and you go to Colorado, places where you can score, even Atlanta. So to me, you have three ways to go. You got, you know, you could stick with it, which is what I'm telling you to do. You can you can fire the manager or coach to get someone's attention. They already made a little mini splash by getting rid of Gonzalez. So maybe that they've already done some of that when they got rid of him after Sunday night's game. Or you could rip it down and rebuild and start a full out rebuild and see what you could get for Syndergaard and DeGrom and and all these guys. And and I guess they're listen, and if they did that. I'm not going to say they wouldn't be totally justified, but to me, that's aborting this for the wrong reasons when there's still a lot here, when you still have team control for another couple of years. And uh, I, I don't care what happens this year. There's still enough here for a pathway where we could be talking in this offseason about how this team needs to improve in order to be a playoff contender. I'm sorry. That's the way it goes. The Phillies have come back down to earth. I'm still not sold to the Braves of this dynasty in the making. Who knows what's going to happen with the Nationals and, uh, you know, the National League. And the league in general has been, you know, uh, there's been a, a lot of parity. And I think part of it is that teams are kind of like always like looking at, well, how can I rebuild? And, 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 and they're almost focused on the long picture too much than about staying in the moment. And that'll be good for the Mets because now it gives them time to stay in this race. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, you'll hear my conversation with Joe DeMeo. I do want to apologize. When we were using the recording line, it wasn't Joe's phone. Sometimes when I call out, there's you know some sound issues. There's a little bit of popping. It's a little annoying. It you know I did my best to clean it up. Hopefully, you still enjoy it. Joe did a great job. He had a lot to say, and uh, you know to me, uh, he, he's well worth a listen. So if you could just ignore that a little bit. Um, hopefully you'll still enjoy this segment. We'll be back with more Talking Mets podcast as Joe DeMeo of the Seven Line and Amazing Avenue talks about the Mets' recent draft, sleepers, you know, potential reaches, uh, potential players to look out for. He has it all. We'll be back right after this. With the sixth selection of the 2018 MLB draft, the New York Mets select Jared Kelnick, an outfielder. Jared's an outfielder from Waukesha West High School in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Okay, pure hitter and gamer. I got a first-hand look at this guy in Chicago, the home run derby in that game. He didn't advance. My man was hacked. He wants to play. He wants to compete. And when I look at this guy, they talk about, for his age, maybe the best pure hitter in the draft. Uh, this swing is easy. 
He has a good idea at home plate during the game that night. Base hit the other way right here on a 92-mile-an-hour fastball. He said, hey, Tristan, I'll see you in June at the draft, big fella. I won't see you too long here, though, because I'm running. I'm gone. I'm stealing the bag. My man can hit. He can play the game. And this play really jumped out at me. Going to the corner in Wrigley, making this play and making this throw into second base is awesome. This is a big league ballpark. That's deep down the right field corner. Great angle, great understanding of the game. So this kid, Jared Kelnick, I think he's going to get into the minor league system. I think he's going to swing the bat. He's going to prove to people he knows how to play the game. And more importantly, he wants to play the game every single day. That time of the year again, the MLB draft this past Monday. Amazing how quickly the season goes. And every year we try to have a draft show. We try to take a look at some of these players that the Mets have selected. Always hard. You don't really get to see them a lot. And, uh, you know, everybody's an expert these days. But uh, we're happy to have with us a guy that for a long time has tried to stand above the fray when it comes to this stuff and, and do his due diligence, do his work. And give you as much insight as you can to what essentially some of these guys are, 18-year-old kids. And you never know if you ever see the light of day again or you'll ever talk about them again. But it's Joe DeMeo. You can check out Joe over at Amazing Avenue. He contributes to the 7 Line. Uh, his Twitter handle is at PSL to Flushing, which is basically Port St. Lucie to Flushing. And if you follow him, you're just going to basically get the entire Mets organization, whether you're the 18-year-old kid just getting drafted all the way up to the big league. So, Joe, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Uh, Michael, year, how's it going? Good. You had a lot of I fun do. doing the uh, the draft every year. It's kind of like uh, your thing, you know. Yeah, I always have a lot of fun. It's a it's a it's a long couple days, um, but it's it's certainly always been something that I've been into. So it's uh, it's fun to keep doing it. So let's do an overall synopsis here. Hard to say. Mets don't talk a lot about what they think about the draft or you know their feelings. Everyone's always positive. You know, if anyone watched the MLB draft special, they have positive things to say about every pick, which is no different than other sports. Not as intense as other sports where people get crazy, like the NFL draft, about who the Giants pick, the Jets pick, things like that. But anyway, Jared Kelnick, uh, Mets had a pretty high pick this year, one of the higher ones since you've been doing this uh, this analysis or this type of thing. And Billy Ripken said a lot of nice things about him. Great arm. He thinks he's a gamer, good hitter, has some power. He said he might be the best overall offensive player in the draft. Obviously, 18, high school, coming from a non-traditional baseball state. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, uh, Kelnick was actually the second highest the second highest pick I've seen the Mets take since I've been doing it. The first draft I really covered was Phil Umber, uh, who they took number three in 2004. Um, but yeah, big fan of Kelnick. Uh, he sort of, sort of reminds me a little bit of Christian Yelich. Um, that's, I'm not a big, big, big comp guy, but I see a little bit, he does a little bit of everything very well. Uh, his most elite trait is probably his arm, uh, which I think translates his ability to play right field if he outgrows center field physically. But he, he can hit for average. He has a good understanding of the strike zone. He has some pop. He can run a little bit. So he does a little bit of everything. Uh, I don't know if he has that true 70-grade tool anywhere, but I think he's loaded with 55s and 60s on the 2080 scale, which is well above average at, at basically everything. So like you said, a little underdeveloped, so to speak, given where he's from and not being able to play all year. But his father actually built a really nice facility for not just Jared, but all the kids in the area. So during the winter... They had basically a full-size infield, batting practice area, all that stuff. So they, he, he got his work in in the winter, but it, it's just obviously not the same as someone from Texas or Florida or something like that. So it's a little different. Throw another comp that they were putting out there was Mark Kotze, who had a nice 17-year career. Not a star, average, league average type hitter, had a little bit of pop, a decent on-base percentage guy. He was a, a first-round pick of the Marlins, and... I would say for a top 10 pick, probably didn't have this career that you would want out of a top 10 pick, but from a standpoint of making it, you knowing how hard it is to make it, 
when you have a 17-year oh, yeah. big league career, regardless if you're a below-league average hitter for your career, uh, that's quite an accomplishment. And he made $50 million bucks to boot, so that's not a bad deal. So what do you think yeah, about that? It's, the, it's not bad. I think Kase was a pretty decent all-around player. His stats, obviously, were not so you know amazing, obviously. But I, I don't think it's a bad company. He did a little bit of everything pretty well. I mean, if the Mets got a guy that played in the big leagues for 17 years out of it, then uh, that's quite the successful uh, top 10 pick, even if he's not a superstar. Joe DeMeo joining us. You can check out Joe on Amazing Avenue and the Seven Line uh, blog. You also probably, if you went to the Queens Baseball Convention, he was part of the panel with Pete McCarthy of WOR, Matt Cerrone, Rich Catino, our buddy Mark Healy over at Gotham Baseball. Nobody gave me the invitation. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say anymore. So, but um, so Joe, Mike, you should have came down. <laughs> I, you know what? I had another commitment that day, but I will try to make it down. Uh, you know, to Astoria. I guess if if it's still in Astoria, but definitely. But you did a nice job there. And uh, if you go to Thank Joe's you. Twitter banner, you can see the whole panel there and and everything like that. And that was a fun day, Brandon. Nimmo was there. That's probably something we should do more about. But what about the overall Mets draft? What do you feel? Here's a team that had a bad year last year. This season's not shaping up any better. They had a top, you know, ten pick, high, you know, low, low pick. Obviously, that translated as you sneak around to the other rounds. The farm system is under a lot of fire from the media. Although I think there's some gems in there. Clearly, they're not getting the publicity and the love as the guys across town, rightfully so. Is this draft the beginning of maybe? in your opinion, at least from the process and from what you feel of this thing turning around and maybe the Mets importing some talent into the farm? Um, I think they import some talent. I do question uh, potential breakout guys outside of the top couple picks, obviously, which you kind of have that expectation when you draft them. Uh, I think a lot of, a lot of their mid-round picks, they spent a lot on college guys. Uh, high high level college performers, which is a little different than what they've done in the past. Uh, they typically kind of did a bunch of seniors in the top ten rounds to save some money, and then they'd go grab a few high school kids in the round eleven to sixteen range and throw some money at them and see see kind of what sticks. Uh, this year, they spent a lot of their picks in the teens on just high end college performers, which is a different strategy. Um, might be a little more organizational depth than potential big league impact guys. But there, there are some guys, uh, I like to focus in the top 10 rounds primarily, because uh, that's where the bonus pools are allotted and stuff like that. And then I'll, I could touch on a couple guys outside of that. But inside the top 10, uh, they got Kelnick, obviously. I'm a big fan of Riley Gilliam, their fifth round pick, who was the closer for Clemson this year, and also uh, shared closing duties with Team USA for the, the college team. And he has been stated as Jim Callis as possibly one of the first guys in this whole draft that can make the major leagues. Uh, so that that's certainly a big plus. He's up to 97 on the fastball, hammer curveball, uh, potential late inning reliever kind of guy. And the potential steal in the top 10, in my personal opinion, if he could figure out how to throw strikes, he sort of reminds me of Dellen DeFantis. Uh, it's Bryce Montes de Oca. He's a big 6'7", 6'8", 250 guy from Missouri. Uh, pumps a sinker that he can get up to 100, 101 miles an hour with a slider that uh, flashes plus plus in the upper 80s. So they, they got some guys that I think are kind of interesting. I just don't know how, uh, like as far as like prep kids with super high upside, they didn't really go that route early on. In. Joe, I brought up minor league ball. And they and here's what we'll do here. So minor league ball, the way they they do the draft, they do the best pick, the reach, the sleeper, and then the deep sleeper. Uh, okay. Best pick is obviously uh, Jared Kelnick. We talked about him, and, and he sounds like he's a very he's the kind of player I like. Gamer, uh, grinder. Yep. You know, in a lot of ways, I know this is a lazy narrative comparison, but Nimmo was a guy that came from a non-traditional. Uh, baseball uh, state and his dad had the barn and, and Nimmo is a guy that has been underwhelming in the minor leagues and there was a point in time where I was like uh, if I never see Brendan Nimmo uh, another day it would make me happy because he was like that that first round pick that made you wonder what if you know Corey Sager the late Jose Fernandez and what could the Mets have done in certain right. situations in certain drafts 
But he's starting to work out, and I'm starting to like Nimmo. And, and I think you met him at the Queens Baseball Convention, and he's really yeah, won the fan yeah, base I, over with his mindset. And we'll get to that, yeah. but let me go through this draft, because that 2011 draft, I want to go into that before we, uh, you know, during this segment. So Kelnick is the guy that they have the best pick. Now, the, first, the reach, Carlos Cortez, South Carolina outfielder, round three. I guess he's ambidextrous. He plays the infield and the outfield, and he throws differently depending on, uh, obviously, where he is. Uh, they feel he's a reach at, no, at the the third round. What do you think about Carlos Cortez, the outfielder from South Carolina? Do you agree with that? Um, the Mets actually are going to be playing him at second base, or at least trying him out there to start his professional career. So they're moving him out of the outfield, at least to start, I've been told. Um, they've been in love with his swing for quite some time. They actually drafted him out of high school, and he he didn't sign and decided to go to South Carolina, where he's shown some on-base skill, some power skill. Um, he's really struggled at hitting for average, so his contact skills haven't been great. So I can see why they were considered a reach. And if you look at the draft tracker, MLB pipeline didn't have him in their top 200 prospects. Uh, so that's feasible. Um, but the Mets have a long history with them and have liked them. So that's, sometimes it just works that way. I mean, it, it's tough. Like, I, I always like to look at these rankings, but I use them more as like a guide, so to speak. Ultimately, these, these teams have different opinions than what the public does, even more so than in the NFL draft or the NBA draft or all these other drafts. They, they really have a different opinion because they could have coached this kid. Like, they, they, the Mets coached Jared Kelnick when he was 15 years old. One of the Mets scouts coached him when he was 15. So they, they have long-standing relationships with these kids, and they don't really, I guess, care what rankings say, but I, I could see why they would think that. Now, the, there's a sleeper and a deep sleeper, so good job by you. The first sleeper is Bryce Montes de Oca. You, uh, you, you brought him up. You, I think you compared him to Dylan Batances, can throw 100. They, they seem to be skeptical that he could be a starter, more of a reliever. I guess that's where it's the command of the pitches, and it just sounds like because he would be a sleeper, you know, where he's going to go, but he, you, you touched on him already, but the other deep sleeper is Christian Tripp, right-handed pitcher, New Mexico, round 13. Um, thoughts on uh, Christian Tripp from New Mexico? A uh, bit of an interesting delivery. Not not like crazy, but a little cross-body action. Um, put up some good stats over at New Mexico. Throws low 90s. Um, yeah, I, I think he, he's got some decent stuff. Uh, I assume he'll, once he signs, he'll go to Brooklyn. And uh, hopefully I get to see him this summer. Um, but as far, and quickly on Montez de Oca with the bullpen and the starter. If, if I'm running things, he's no longer starting another game. Him and Riley Gilliam could go pitch at the back end of the Brooklyn bullpen this summer and kind of we'll take it from there. Fair enough. Bullpens have become, you know, some bullpens are becoming so important that I think you may see teams, because how expensive the relievers will, will become start to build the bullpens through the draft. I know the Mets did that through trades last year. And, yep. you know, Ryan Ryder, uh, Hanhold uh, from the Brewers, you know, guys like that. So you may be seeing a little bit of a different philosophy where back in the day, you never would really be excited about drafting a reliever or a bunch of relievers out of the, uh, out of the, the amateur draft because you figure you take your failed starters and put them in the bullpen. Maybe that mindset is changing a little bit. Yeah, it, it sure it sure appears to be. I mean, look what Tampa Bay is doing. I, I'm not sure how I feel about that yet, but uh, they're going to the extreme where relievers are starting games and all that stuff. So uh, I think relievers are even more important than ever before, and it, it's really noticed in the playoffs, honestly. And so if you notice in the playoffs, bullpen can really, really mess you up. So Mets have been criticized, understanding all this in for player development. I don't think that's completely unfair. I think they're also mm -hmm. criticized maybe where Alderson has benefited from the Omar players, the Grom, Mats, before he broke down Harvey, Duda, a lot of guys at that, that 2015 club basically, uh, you know, and Syndergaard and, and, and Darno are the exception, but obviously Dickey and Omar signing a Dickey, which is probably a lot of luck, played into that. Right. So I pulled up the 2011 draft. I said, okay, at this point, we're seven years out on this draft. Let's see. You can start evaluating it. So here here are the first six picks. Actually, the first five picks. Brandon Nimmo, Michael Fulmer, Corey Mazzoni, Logan Verrett, Tyler Pill, Jake Leatherstitch. So all those guys made the big leagues. Fulmer's an impact pitcher. 
Uh, Nimmo yep. is starting to become an impact player, a starter. Mazzoni, you know, has not really taken his uh, his game to the big leagues in a, in, in, in a long fashion, but he got them Jerry Blevins. Logan Verrett helped them in the World Series year as a component player. Tyler Pill, that's probably a disappointment. Didn't have great stuff and didn't look good last year. And Jake Leatherstitch just, it seems like injuries derailed him. If you go further down that draft, you have Danny Munoz, Robert Gazelman, Philip Evans, Travis Tyrone, John Gant. That helped them. Uh, they got uh, uh, Kelly Johnson for John Gant. And then there's A.J. Reed, who didn't sign with them, but wound up going to the uh, Astros later on. And, and it was a high, so it was a second-round pick maybe. And then you have Seth Lugo and Chase Bradford. Both are very useful players now. So, look, there's a ton of players that are never going to see the light of day. Bradley Marquez, who I actually interviewed, you know, a guy who plays football and everything, falls into that. But, um, you know, that's the way this works. Not an outstanding yeah. draft in terms of impact stars, but, look, this is hard what they're doing. Um, so if you look back, yeah. that's Sandy Olderson's first draft. I don't know if you've ever done that and then kind of reacted yeah. to it now, now that I, I listed them out. Yeah. Now, now that you list them out, I realize that it really was actually a pretty decent draft. I know that from a the general fan just looks at they drafted him. Did he come up and make a major impact? And if the answer is no, then it was a bad pick. But you and I both kind of know sort of how this how, how difficult it is to even get there. Uh, it's just such a long path. So much stuff you have to deal with. Not making much money. Not eating great food. Not being able to focus on a lot of things except just playing baseball and playing in these little nothing towns and going through five, sometimes six levels of the minor leagues, depending on where, where you're drafted and having to succeed at all levels to move to the next. It's, it's just such, such a struggle to even get to the big leagues. I, I tend to give people credit that just make it. Um, but obviously you'd like to see more impact on the major league team. But all in all, they got some guys that we look now and they're still part of the team and still helping out. Yeah, and, and you see a lot of that in the next year. Guys like Gavin Shashini, who's been a, a, a disappointment, Kevin Plowicki, Matt Reynolds, those are the first three. Corey Oswalt was in the next draft, Thomas Nitto, Matt Koch, who got them, uh, Addison Reed, Cliff, Chris Flexen, Matt Bowen, Paul Seawald was in that draft, Tim Peterson, who just got brought up. So you see a lot of component players in that draft. And then I'll throw one more. You go to, what, 2013. We go to 2013 here. Then that's when you get, um, let's see, Joe, 2013. That's the Dominic Smith draft. Yep. And that was, was a pretty bad draft because yeah. you got Dominic Smith, Andrew Church, who just retired. I've, I mean, the first yeah. six picks, uh, Luis Guillermo is picked 10. He just got called up. Kevin McGowan is not really – that. the 2013 one is probably the one that right now, and that's only five years out, but that's still enough time. That That's looking pretty bad. Yeah, that's enough time to Billy. Yeah, hard success, but still, Champ Stewart in there. There's Tyler Bachelor, Jeff McNeil. There's some guys that are are in the minor leagues right now that maybe will make an impact, but right now, not looking good. So overall, if you you know had to look at Sandy Alderson, who has a couple of years left on his contract, you know his tenure is probably going to be wrapping up soon. John Rickle will probably take over. Uh, I know that this year is not going to be evaluated for quite a while. Do you feel the Mets have done a good job in the amateur draft, and um, have they put themselves in a position where they can have players to develop, or is it the player development part and not the drafting part? I, I put more into player development than the draft itself because anyone could just really go make picks and just see how it works out. So that they've done okay. I, I don't think their player development system is poor by any means. Uh, I certainly wouldn't rank it among the top in the league either. I think it's it's a solid, okay player development system that could be better. Um, but they they do better with certain kind of guys. Uh, Their pitching, obviously, they've had much more success at developed pitching than they have with offensive players. Um, so to Seth Sandy, uh, he, he's done he's done okay in that in that uh, respect. I think having Paul De Podesta was obviously a a big plus uh, for them, and that's kind of where they. A lot of reason why they are where they are. He he did a, he did a, a very good job before he left for the Cleveland Browns, which which that was weird. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think Sandy's done okay. But I do think it's it's starting to get to the time where they need to maybe think about moving on. Um, I don't think they'll ever fire him, 
I don't think they'll ever just straight up say we're firing Sandy Alderson. I do think that it'll get to the point at some point where they do a maybe after this year potentially even where they'll do the mutual decision to part ways, yada yada stuff. And I would think John Rico would be the heir, but I, I almost would hope they would get a whole new voice and a whole new kind of system in place. Uh, they went outside the box with Mickey Callaway for manager, which I kind of didn't expect. So I'm hoping that maybe they'll uh, go outside the box and general manager, but it sure doesn't sound that way. No, John Rico. Why, why do you think the? Do you have any idea in your opinion? And I know the Mets overhauled the minor league system this past uh, off season. Why do you think that player development may be lacking? Was what is it a philosophy? You know, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, it, it could be part philosophical for sure. Uh, I think they obviously, it, but it's not much different than other organizations where they kind of have a, a certain type of player that they want people to be. The Mets focus is on power and on base percentage mostly with their offensive players in the minors. And I, I think that they could maybe do a better job of playing to individual players' skill sets instead of kind of taking their model and say, become this, more or less. Right. Yeah, so that's I, a very I, fair I think, point. I think they could get better there. And offensively, do you think it's they're too patient? They're uh, potentially, um, you know, looking for hitters to work the count and then and this Nimmo falls into this because he's adjusted. At least I've seen him be a little bit more aggressive this year. When Nimmo Finally. first came up, I mean, it was like everything was three-two, great. But with runners in scoring position, you'd be more looking to walk than to drive the runners in, and it was like it would drive me crazy. You get called out on strikes, but it seems like he's adjusted. And you wonder: Are the Mets overly patient? Have they taken this on-base percentage approach and they've become crippled by it? I, I think that's a very fair point. I, I, I obviously I spoke to Nimmo in Brooklyn. I spoke to him in Binghamton. I saw him play. I came and tell you quite a few times in the minor leagues. And my biggest qualm with him was basically exactly what you just stated. Uh, he was cer- he certainly had a great eye. That's still evident today. How he has a very very good understanding of the strike zone. But I, I would just watch him one uh, one. Just let a fastball down the middle. Just let it go. And I'm like, come on, man! That like that's the pitch you jump on. Like you being patient is great. Having a good understanding of the strike zone is even better. But you have to know when something's in your zone, you have to attack it. Whether it's a one, 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 two, one, two, zero, oh, three, two, whatever it is, you have to attack when you get a pitch in your zone. And I thought he was a bit too cautious early on, but as as evident now, you see him jumping on first fastball that's there in his zone. So he's He's obviously grown grown a lot, so very very uh, very very happy with how he's grown. Interesting stuff. So, Joe, what do you got coming up? What do you got? I mean, obviously, you do stuff on Amazing Avenue and the Seven Line Blog, and the draft is kind of your thing. But you look at minor yeah. leagues. I know Brooklyn is starting for the listeners, yeah. and if you want to follow Joe, you can go at PSL to Flushing on Twitter at Port, basically Port St. Lucie to Flushing at PSL to Flushing, but. Joe's on Twitter. I know you got the blogs on uh, Amazing Avenue and the Seven Line. What else do you have going on this summer so the fans can get an yeah, idea? This summer, I hope to see Binghamton another couple times, and I'm going to go to Brooklyn, so look for my reports there. I'm going to touch on as many players as I can when I go to Brooklyn, and a high percentage of them are going to be players from this draft. So if you're into this draft and you follow me along with me, which I was very, very thankful. I gained a lot of followers and had a lot of talks with uh, – different Mets fans over a three-day period of the draft that seem to be very interested. So if you're interested in it, uh, it'll be it'll be cool to follow and see kind of what these guys do. And you might even see uh, Mark Vientos, who's a very, very high upside second-round pick from last year. Uh, I, I heard he might be on the Brooklyn roster this year. So that, that would certainly be exciting. All right. Well, we'll check in. Appreciate the time. Be well, and we'll do it again, Joe. Always, always like talking draft and minor league baseball with you. Anytime, Michael Chat. And that's Joe DeMeo. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. And uh, you know, we'll definitely um we'll definitely have him on again. You know, always enjoy having Joe on. Hey, I want to thank all of you for spending some time here today on this uh, midweek edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. As I said, we'll try to continue to do, you know, some midweek stuff when the opportunity arises. Still gonna want to do the Sunday show, still gonna be popping on W L I E when Rich Catino invites me. 
Uh, so we'll keep doing that. Of course, I want to thank my friends over at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Check it out at The Ruling Truth, part of the iHeart Radio Network. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll talk soon. Take care. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.